I would like to welcome all of you here today who are joining us online as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. But before we move into chapters 15 and 16 of the book of Revelation today, I would like for us all to first take a quick journey back into the Old Testament back to the book of Exodus and the story of Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now, I would guess that many of you are familiar with the Exodus story. Some of you know it very well. Others of you perhaps don't know it as well. Maybe you remember a few details from a sermon or a few details from a Sunday school class you took as a kid. But either way, I want us to go back in time and refresh our memories of Moses and how the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. And the reason reason why I want us to go back and remember this is because there is a direct link between the exodus of the Israelites and the next section of the book of Revelation. You see, the exodus is this fascinating true story that I hope if you have never read it, you will go back and read it sometime. But for our purposes today, I'm simply going to highlight some of the the major details of the exodus story so that we can connect this dot that seems to be connected in the books of Revelation 15 and 16. So here's how the story goes. In the Old Testament, you have, uh, you have the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are living in Egypt. And that's a fascinating story, how that family even got to Egypt in the first place. But over the course of the next several hundred years, this family grows into a large community. Many people estimate that this family grew well over a million people. Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, he turned them into slaves, He feared that this group had gotten so large that they might rise up and and overthrow him and the Egyptians. So he turned them into slaves. And this went on year after year after year. And finally, the Israelite people, they cried out to God for help and God heard their cry and he sends Moses to rescue them. Now, there are many details in this story, but in a nutshell, here's what happened. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, hey, you've got to let my people go. And, and Pharaoh was like, uh, that ain't happening. There is no way I'm letting all this free labor go away. There's no way I'm going to do it. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, yeah, I don't care what you do. I ain't changing my mind. And so what happens next? God begins sending a series of plagues onto the country of Egypt, into Pharaoh's life. Do you remember what these plagues were? There were 10 in all. There was the plague of blood. Then the plague of frogs, and then gnats, and there was flies, then plagues on the livestock, then there were boils and hail and locusts, and there was darkness, and the final one was the death of the firstborn. After all of these plagues, finally, Pharaoh relents, and he lets the Israelites go, and the Israelites, they pack up everything, and they head off towards the promised land that God said that he would give to them. It is the land that we know today as the Holy Land, also known as Israel. But after they had left, it didn't take long for for Pharaoh and his advisors to be like, what have we done? We've just released all of our free labor. Now what are we going to do? And Pharaoh's hearts turned hard and he calls together his entire army, which included, the Bible says this detail, 600 of his best chariots and then all the other chariots in Egypt. This is a massive 
army that is assembled to go after this massive group of people known as the Israelites. Can you imagine, if you know the story, can you imagine how terrifying it had to have been for the Israelites when they get to the shore of the Red Sea and they realize that Pharaoh and his armies are pursuing them. They have nowhere to go. There is nowhere to escape. But we know what happened next, right? God sends a mighty wind and the waters of the Red Sea, they part and all of the Israelites, this huge group of people, they go across the Red Sea on dry ground all the way to the other side of the Red Sea. And when they are all the way on the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army pursues them across the very dry ground that they had walked through. But when they get into the middle, God lets the wind go. And you know the story, the waters of the Red Sea come crashing back down and it destroys every last person in Pharaoh's army. Boy, wouldn't that have been something to see? Boy, if there, there's these moments in, in the Bible that I'd love to have a silver DeLorean with a flex capacitor and go back in time and watch some of these things. This is one of those things I'd want to go back and see. So here you have God's people who have safely crossed the Red Sea and they watch God deliver them from their enemies, from these Egyptians, this Pharaoh who had tormented them for all of these years. Do you know what the Israelites did right after the sea came down and, and, and washed all the Egyptians away, killing them? Do you know what they did? They sang songs. They sang and they danced and they partied and they sang these songs so loudly that you come to Exodus chapter 15 and we actually get to read the lyrics of their singing. That's right. Do you get the picture? They are standing on the shores of the Red Sea and you've got this million person group of people. They are singing songs to God and we actually get to read the lyrics. In Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, it's known as the song of Moses. Now there are plenty of more twists and turns in this amazing true story of God's people and the Exodus, but the Israelites, they will eventually set up what's called the tabernacle, which is really this huge, elaborate, movable tent. They're going to set this up out in the wilderness, and that is going to be the place that God dwells with people. It makes his physical presence in and around this tabernacle, and the Israelites knew God is with us, and we are with him. It's an incredible story of both God's deliverance and God's wrath on full display. Now, with that in mind, let's move from Exodus chapter 15 and let's fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 15. Do you have your Bibles? Would you go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 15 at this time? Because what you're going to see in Revelation 15 and Revelation 16 is that these two chapters of the Bible, and really on into God's judgment, they loosely parallel the story of the Exodus. Whereas the Israelites in the book of Exodus, they were oppressed and then rescued, followed by God's wrath being poured out on the evil ones, and then they enjoyed this wonderful um, fellowship with God in his presence. Well, in Revelation 15 and 16, we learn that God's people, the church, they are being oppressed by the dragon and his beast. And the church is going to be rescued at the second coming of Jesus. And then we're going to see how God's wrath will be poured out on the dragon and his beast and all of those people who have aligned themselves with him. After which, the saved, the church, those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, we will enjoy eternity 
in the presence of God himself. It's quite an amazing thing to see these two events, the deliverance of the Israelites in the past and the future deliverance of the church at the second coming of Jesus, how these two events parallel each other in the book of Revelation. I truly believe that that's how the Christians in the first century would have read this vision that John is writing down. Uh, They would have connected with that much better than we do. They, They would have naturally seen this connection between the Israelites and the church. And I hope that I can help you see that as well today. So let's look at Revelation 15 and let's start in verse one. What does it say? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Whose eye? It's John. John sees this. It's his vision. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now, if you remember from last week's message in Revelation chapter 14, John saw a glimpse of God's wrath, didn't he? Do you remember the imagery that we read about? How angels came down from heaven and what were they holding? They were holding these large harvesting sickles and they were swinging them across the surface of the earth and they were harvesting people. And we read how the angels, they harvest the grapes from the earth's vine, which is a, a reference to wicked people who bore the mark of the beast. They, 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 they harvested up all these people. And what's the imagery that we read about? They were thrown into the wine press of God's wrath where they were trampled on. If you've ever seen a wine press, it looks something like, like this. Look at this picture that's here at the bottom of the screen. There are actually lots of different methods on how you, how you press grapes and how you get the juice out of grapes. But essentially, it goes like this. The grapes are thrown into a bucket or a container or some sort of basin, and they are literally stomped on by people's feet to extract the juice. And so this picture right here is a great representation of this imagery of Revelation, where, where these people in God's wrath, he is actually stomping on them like grapes in a wine press. Now, that's kind of gross if you ask me, but that's how it's done and that's how it was done and it's how it's still done in many parts of the world. So you need to remember this image the next time you pour yourself a glass of wine. Oh, somebody's feet's been on this. Well, maybe not. At the end of chapter 14, John sees God's wrath just like this. Who's getting trampled on? It's all those who have aligned themselves with the dragon. It's all those who received the mark of the beast, who had, who had his character stamped on their lives. So we move from that imagery of God's wrath in chapter 14 right into another picture of God's fury. That is chapter 15. So we have seven angels with seven of the last plagues last because after these seven plagues, are, 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 are delivered. God will be done and it will be over. Now, as we read about these seven plagues, as we read about these seven angels, keep in mind what's going on with the 10 plagues in Egypt. Don't lose sight of that. God destroying Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and then the Israelites singing on the shore after God did all that. In fact, as we read chapter 15 and 16, we really need to keep one eye in the book of Revelation and we need to keep the other eye in the book of Exodus because these two stories parallel each other. Look at verse two. And then I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire 
And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb. Now let's just stop right there. What is John seeing in this vision? He is seeing the saved. He's seeing the church, Christians, you know, all those people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language who have followed the Lord. He is seeing them being victorious over the dragon, which is Satan, and of his beast. Where are they standing? They are standing on the sea, on the edge of the sea. That's what John sees. He sees a sea and, and of glass glowing with fire, and all the saved are standing next to it. And then what happens? They start singing. They start singing the song of Moses. They start singing songs to the Lamb. And not only that, not only that, but God is like handing out musical instruments. He's like, you get a harp, you get a harp, you get a harp, and you get a harp. And all of these people are singing praises to God, and they are victorious over the dragon. And what do they sing? They sing the song of Moses. That immediately for us connects the dot between Revelation 15 and Exodus chapter 15. When the Israelites, when they sang at the edge of the, so of the shore after God delivered them from the Egyptian army. So and just like Moses and the Israelites sang, Christians sing at the destruction of our enemies. Listen to the lyrics of the church singing that's verse three. This is what they sang. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a snapshot. This is a snapshot. This is a glimpse of God's wrath. And it is to be understood in a similar fashion as the Israelites' deliverance from slavery. Look at verse five. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. This is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was open. So the very next glimpse that John sees after all the Christians are singing about the destruction of the beast, he sees in heaven that the temple, the tabernacle of the covenant, open up by even mentioning the tabernacle of the covenant. Some translations even say the tabernacle of testimony. By even mentioning it, John is linking this heavenly tabernacle with the tabernacle of the Exodus as the place where God's glory, his presence dwells. It's, it's really a symbol of God's agreement with mankind. He's like, I will be your God and you will be my people. You believed in me throughout the last days. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now I am gonna do what I said that I would do and I'm gonna bring you into my presence and we are going to be together. Just like the Israelites had the tabernacle and they enjoyed this presence of God, we will be in heaven with God and his presence will be forever. This is a snapshot of the end. Now follow the imagery, follow the symbolism, okay? If the Israelites being oppressed by the Egyptians and then saved by God who destroyed their enemies and then they went on to the promised land where they enjoyed their, their time with God and in his presence being their people. If that is the first exodus, then the second exodus is the church today being oppressed by the dragon and his beast during these last days. 
then rescued by God by the return of Jesus Christ. And that is followed by the destruction of the dragon and the beast and all those who belong to him. And we sing our songs of celebration at evil being squashed under God's hand. And then we, the saved, go on into heaven. Somebody say amen. Somebody say hallelujah. Somebody say praise God. We win. This is victory. So John sees God's wrath and salvation a lot like a second exodus of God's people. Now look at verse six. Out of the temple came seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, let me just kind of help pull this in together and see the big picture what's going on. John received a snapshot view of God's deliverance and judgment. That's what we just read. It's like a second exodus. The church is delivered, evil is punished, and we get to be with the Lord forever. These seven angels with the seven plagues, it will set up in a more specific way the wrath of God being poured out. So we have a snapshot, the big picture view, and this next part is kind of a, kind of a more detailed description of how God's wrath is going to play out in the last days and then with the return of Christ and the final judgment of God. Now, before we go any further than that right there, and I know I'm giving you a lot of information and some of you are gonna, probably going to need to go back and maybe even watch this again and study it even further. We're, I'm flying at a very high level here, just trying to get the big picture. But before we go any further, I, I want to point something out to you that I find fascinating. I find it really cool and I find how the scripture all just comes together and it is complete. When God sent the 10 plagues into Egypt... The final one was the worst of them all. It was the death of the firstborn son of every born animal and every family in Egypt. And the only way that you could be saved from this plague, do you remember how? They had to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their homes. And when that night, when the death angel came, came over Egypt and came over the Egyptians and the Israelites... When this angel saw the blood of the lamb over the doorpost covering the homes, he would recognize that and say, that's God's people and I will not destroy the firstborn of that family. Well, if you know the story well, the next morning, Egypt woke up to a scene of death that they had never witnessed before. It was only then that Pharaoh decided to let the Israelites go. That event, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, God told the Israelites that very day when it happened, he says, I don't want you guys to ever forget this moment. He says, from this point on, I want you to celebrate it year after year and never forget what God has done for you on this night. And he says, this celebration it's gonna be known as the Passover. In fact, that's a word that many of us are very familiar with. To this day, for a Jewish person, the Passover is still a celebration that is observed and held very sacred. God told the Israelites on this very day that they left Egypt. He says, from now on, the firstborn of everything now belongs to me. It will be holy unto me. And it will serve and help you remember 
all that has happened here and it will be a sign that sets you apart from everyone else in the world. It will be a symbol, it'll be a sign that you are my people and you are different than everyone else. Now, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, the, the death angel had come through and the Israelites are getting ready to leave Egypt. And listen to what it says. God says, in the days to come, when your sons ask you. So it's like, hey, someday off in the future, when you are much removed from this moment you're experiencing right now, your sons, your family is gonna come and ask you, what does this mean? This celebration, the consecration of the firstborn, what does it mean? And this is what you were to say to him. With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And listen to verse 13. It should sound familiar. Are you ready? And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remembering what the Lord has done. It's like wearing it on your forehead and your hand and it will be a sign for the whole world to see that you belong to God. We see this same concept in the book of Revelation, don't we? In other words, don't ever forget, church, who saved you. Don't ever forget who's gonna be the one that delivers you. Don't ever forget why you're gonna sing on the shore of God's deliverance one day. Don't ever forget and you know how you don't ever forget? You live it out publicly every single day. You wear this faith on your lives and it will be obvious to the world. It's like wearing a sign on your hand or a sign on your forehead for the whole world to see of who you are and who you belong to. It will identify that you are on God's team in the last days. You see, Jewish people would take this concept of wearing their faith out loud and publicly, and it would develop into this thing called phylacteries. And they would wear phylacteries on their hands and foreheads. And when you go to Jerusalem today, you still see this on the streets of Jerusalem. Phylacteries were little boxes that contain scripture and prayers, and they are worn on the foreheads. And it's like an obvious sign, I'm part of God's family. And I want the whole world to see what I'm all about. Revelation speaks about those living in the last days. They'll be marked by the seal of the living God. Their father's name will be written across the forehead of Christians. They are identified as God's team. In the first Exodus, God's people were marked and it showed. In the second Exodus, the one that's to come, God's people are marked. The Holy Spirit and God's character are stamped on God's people and it shows. Likewise, your life might also bear the mark of the beast and the drippings of the world are falling off of you and that will show as well. You see, the big picture revelation of this marking and all of these, the, the symbols on the foreheads, it's all about whose team are you on. It's all about who are you living for in the last days. It will absolutely show, and it should be absolutely obvious. When you meet somebody in the world today, it should be obvious that you don't reek of the world. That's what this is all about. I'm on God's team. I play for God. I don't play for the, for the devil, I play for the Lord and the whole world should be able to see this. Friends, I want you to know something today, something we all know, 
that nobody can deny that we are living in unprecedented times. The coronavirus, it isn't the first pandemic that the world has ever seen. Nor are we experiencing today the first civil unrest in our nation's history. Neither of these are a first. But I can't think of a better time for the faith of Christians to be on full display for the entire world to see. Can you think of a better time for us to be living our faith out loud? And when I say live our faith out loud, I don't mean by the words that we say, but I'm talking about our actions, what the world sees, and the conclusions they draw from our lives, our faith on full display. Is it obvious to a world that's scared and experiencing unrest? You know, this is not the season for us to be social media barbarians who think that we can solve all the world's problems in 160 characters or less. If people just listen to me, they'll figure this out. We're not gonna meme our way unto salvation, nor are we gonna social shame the world into repentance. That is not how it works. When Jesus said, let your light shine, he wasn't referring to the glow of your computer screen or the glow of your smartphone. No. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and do what in return? Glorify their father in heaven. Letting your light shine, living your faith out loud, points people to Jesus. Christians don't need to shame. Christians need to shine. Christians don't need to prove our points or win our arguments. We need to love our neighbors. Christians should not be in the business of vilifying those who see things differently, but rather be consumed with how we can spur one another along to love and good deeds. That, my friends, is how you live your faith out loud. And that is what gives us, as followers of Christ, the best opportunity to position ourselves to be the ambassadors of Christ that God has called us to, armed with the message of reconciliation, which changes lives. We are living in the last days. Jesus could return at any time. John's vision is clear. The wrath of God will be furious and it will be final. We also know from studying the book of Revelation that as of right now, there is still time for repentance and faith. I don't know about you, but we can either browbeat the world to death and save nobody from the wrath of God, or we can love our neighbor we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and in doing so, snatch as many people as possible from the clutches and claws of the dragon. I don't know about you, but I know where I wanna be and I know how I wanna behave and I hope you do too. Revelation chapter 16 brings this reality front and center. Look with me at chapter 16 verse one. Then I, again, John, what does he see and what's he hear? Then I, John, heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. So now we've come here to this chapter of the Bible. We have come to the final set of sevens. As you recall, we had the seven seals and those were followed by what? The seven trumpets. And now we come to the final set of sevens, which are the seven bowls, also known as the seven plagues. The seven bowls and the seven plagues, it's the exact same thing. 
Each of these sets of seven, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, it is a picture of the complete future, starting in John's day and ending with the return of Christ and the final judgment. We are, if you will, if you remember from previous messages, we are going to rewind the movie, so to speak, and we're going to watch it again, only this time we now get a different point of view of the same movie once again. So if you recall back to the seven seals, that was from the point of view of Christians who have to suffer right along with the lost during the last days. That's the seven seals. And then the seven trumpets was from the point of view of the lost who were being called to repentance while there's still time. Now we come to the seven bowls. This is from the point of view of God, okay? Seven seals from the point of view of Christians. Seven trumpets from the point of view of the lost. The seven bowls is now from the point of view of God. And I love how Mark Moore writes about these seven bowls. He writes this. This is raw, unadulterated wrath straight from the throne of God. That's what these seven bowls are. Now remember, John is using apocalyptic literature, which means what? Full of symbolism, full of meanings, full of imagery. And he's using this apocalyptic literature to describe God's wrath. The seven bowls follows the exact same cycles as the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And what I mean by that is you take all these sevens and the first five of them, the first five of the seals, the first five of the trumpets, and the first five of the bowls, well, it describes things that take place on earth. And then the sixth points to some kind of galactic conflict, some kind of return of the Christ in the end times, the final moment. And then the seventh is a picture of God's final judgment. As we quickly read through each of these bowls being poured out, I want you to pay close attention to how they echo the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians way back in the first Exodus. So let's look at chapter 16, verse two. It says, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned the blood, it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Sounds a lot like the plagues of Egypt, doesn't it? For those of you that really desire to take a deeper dive and to go more into the details of this, let me encourage you to spend some time studying the similarities between the 10 plagues of Egypt and the seven plagues of these bulls. And you're gonna discover a whole lot of amazing similarities and it's gonna help connect a whole lot of dots in, in scripture for you. You're also going to notice here how we, once we get to the seven bowls, there is a massive intensity. This judgment has been ramped up. So like you have the seven seals where one fourth of things are destroyed, the seven trumpets where you have, you have uh, a third of things destroyed. And now we get to the seven bowls and it's all destroyed. I mean, it's, it's ramping up. Okay. It's building. Verse four, then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you who are just, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgment. This is, this is very powerful because it's like, All of heaven 
is in agreement that God has every right to pour out his wrath on the, on the earth. This is like all agreement, all agreement of heaven and everyone who has been martyred for their faith, all in one voice, like saying, God, this is fair what you're doing. You know, I mentioned in last week's message, um, and I want to say it again here, that it's really easy for us as Christians to see the God of love. I mean, we read the Bible and say, oh, God is love, and God's who love the world, and, and, and we love that part of it. But what is harder for us is that we often struggle to see the wrath of God at the same time. We love to see the God of love, but we fail to see the God of wrath. Revelation, what it does is it helps us understand God more completely. Look at verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Again, each one of these bowls, these plagues, is reminiscent of one of the plagues of Egypt. They are judgments of God that preceded the deliverance of God's people. Okay? They're the judgments of God, things that are being played out in the last days, in this apocalyptic literature with much symbolism and imagery that's being played out as we await God's deliverance. Then look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and, it was, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Again, I'm just reminded, this is apocalyptic literature. There's a whole lot of symbolism in these verses. And if I'm just being frank with you today, there's a lot of things in here that really is anybody's guess as to what they mean. Many people have given it their best shot this means that, this means this, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's still a guess. What is easier to see and what is easier to discern is that all of this that's being described is leading to something very big. And it's Jesus's own words. Did you catch it in verse 15 that reveal what this is all about and reveal where all of this is headed? Look at verse 15 again. What did Jesus say? Look, I come like a thief. Look, I come like a thief. Do you remember all the times in the New Testament when the return of Christ is described like a thief and that if people knew when a thief was coming, they would stay up and they would be ready. They would make preparations. Jesus is just tapping in to what he's already said. I am gonna come like a thief. And it means nobody is gonna be ready or many people will not be ready. You need to stay awake. You need to be clothed. You know, you need to be remain clothed. In other words, when Jesus comes back, don't be caught with your pants down, so to speak. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. 
So there's a lot of things in here that are, are sometimes hard for us to really understand. What exactly is being said? Well, it's kind of guesswork. But what is this all leading to? It's all leading to the return of Jesus. He's coming back and his warning is, you better be ready. Don't fall asleep on me, church. Be ready. And then we read the seventh bowl, the final judgment that comes after the return of Christ. Then there came flashes of lightning, verse 18, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. What is What are earthquakes in apocalyptic literature? It's a sign of God's judgment. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In other words, God didn't lose Rome in all this. The direct connection with the people of John's day. Every island fled away. And the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on the earth. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Nobody ever said that every page of the book of Revelation would be easy to stomach. I, for one, don't particularly enjoy reading about God's wrath, God's judgment, what's gonna happen to all the lost. I personally... I'd rather read about God's love. That's what I prefer. But what is the good news in this for us today? The good news in all of this for us today is the exact same as last week. We still have time. How much more time? I don't know. But what did Jesus say? I come like a thief. Stay awake, church. This is not the time to put on your pajamas and go to sleep on your walk with Jesus. Be ready. Avoid God's wrath. And if there is anybody who is watching me today and you are not on God's team, I want you to know you still have time. Right now, here's what you can do. You can get down on your knees and you can repent of your sins. You can look up to the sky and you can look up to God and you say, God, I am so sorry for my sins. I'm so sorry for walking through this life all on my own terms and not making you a part of it at all. I am so sorry. And Lord, today I am choosing to be your child. I believe in you. Lord, for maybe the first time in my life, I'm acknowledging this, but Lord, I believe that you died on the cross and you rose to life and I believe that you're coming back again. I believe what your word says that I need to be ready. And so Lord, I apologize. I repent of my sins and I'm forging a new path. I wanna go from out to inside your family and friends, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody watching me who has never done that, I challenge you today, be brave and be courageous. Avoid the wrath that is coming and follow the Lord. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. If you have any questions about any of that, I hope you feel free to reach out for me. I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk about what it means to get out of the clutches of the dragon and into the loving arms of Jesus. You still have time, but do not wait. Dear Heavenly Father, I just give you praise for what we are learning in the book of Revelation. Lord, we give you honor and glory, and we, like all of heaven, declare you are fair and you are just in these judgments. 
Lord, I pray that you help us as a church to be wise and to be ready and to not go to sleep on our walk with you. But Lord, to be alert and ready. And Lord, I pray in these strange and crazy times that I could only describe as part of the last days, as more signs and warnings that your return is near. Lord, I pray that we be good and faithful witnesses of you. That Lord, we will live our lives out loud. That Lord, we will be more consumed with with being your hands and your feet than we are with being right and winning every argument. Lord, I pray, God, that that people will see New Life Christian Church and they will see the love of Jesus pouring out and overflowing from its people. And Lord, in that, may the world around us see that there's something different about them. There's something different about their lives and, and I wanna be a part of what they have. Lord, I pray you give us opportunity every day. Lord, I pray you put the words in our mouth what we are to say. And Lord, I pray that our light shine for this very dark world that we live in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.